Okay. All right, so with that, hey, we're going to dive into Romans. Romans chapter 6. If you're just joining us, uh, what we've been doing over the past few months is we've been studying Romans whenever I've been teaching, and then Dwayne has been studying through Genesis and Exodus. Uh, so we're hoping that these sermon series kind of complement one another. And this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. And what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, we're going to pray, and we're going to dive into our teaching. So Romans chapter 6, first 14 verses. This is the Word of God. Paul begins with a question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get to gather this morning, that we get to hear from your scriptures, that we get to sing your truth back to you. And God, we pray now by the power of your spirit that you would open our minds, that you would open our hearts, that you would give us everything we need to Use this word and put it into practice, that you would make us doers of your word and not merely hearers. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So we've been calling this series through Romans, Basic Christianity, Basic Christianity. And we think of that name, when I thought about that, I was really surprised. I actually was uh, approached by somebody in the lobby after uh, a sermon one Sunday, and she came up to me. Her husband is going through some significant health challenges, they themselves are going through some significant financial challenges. And she said to me, you know, I almost didn't come this morning. This was a couple months back. She said, I almost didn't come this morning, but I'm so glad that I did because I needed to be reminded, no matter what's going on in my life, I needed to be reminded of these basics, these fundamentals. And when she said that, my mind immediately went to a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a 16th century reformer. He was a church, a church teacher and pastor. He wrote, quote, Romans, this book that we're studying, is really the chief part of the New Testament. 
and worthy that every person should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. I love that quote because what he's saying is just as our bodies at the most basic fundamental level need bread to exist, so our souls need these most basic teachings that Paul outlines here in his letter to the Romans. These teachings, these doctrines are like bread to our souls. I love that. So we need to be reminded over and over and over again these basic truths, these basic doctrines. That's why we're going through Romans. And that oftentimes leads to a question. Maybe you're thinking this question too. You think, well, wait, isn't it enough to just love God, to love Jesus? Why, why get bogged down in, in doctrine and, and teaching and, and theology? Why focus on facts about God? After all, isn't it about a relationship and loving God? And it's interesting that sometimes we think that about God, but we don't use that same sort of logic when it comes to other things in our life. So take this for an example. I love the Colorado Rockies. I love the Colorado Rockies. And my love for the Rockies is demonstrated in my knowledge of the Rockies. So I know a lot of obscure things about the Rockies. So for instance, right, the second baseman in, two, in 1999 for the Rockies was Mike Lansing. Does anybody know Mike Lansing in here? One person? Okay. One other Rockies fan. The last starting pitcher for the 2007 season was Josh Fogg. Most saves in franchise history, Brian Fuentes. I also know that the Rockies have the worst mascot in Major League Baseball, Dinger. He's terribly frightening for kids, by the way. First game, 1993, I know that the very first batter for the Colorado Rockies, Eric Young, hit a home run at Mile High Stadium and has been downhill ever since. <laughs> so see, my knowledge about the Rockies does not show that I don't love the Rockies. In fact, my love for the Rockies is demonstrated in knowledge. And the same thing is true with God, that those who love God most are often, not always, but often, those who want to know more, who want to know these truths about God. So Paul, to strengthen our faith and to increase our love of God, lays out these most fundamental, basic beliefs of Christianity. Now, we just read Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 1 through 5 are really Paul's effort to give us two of the most fundamental basic beliefs of Christianity, the first of which is the basic belief about human sin. Human sin, or what we've been calling the bad news. You might remember this song from the 1990s. It might have been early 2000s from the Black Eyed Peas. Black Eyed Peas sang this song, Where is the Love? It goes like this. People killing, people dying. Children hurt, you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach or would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us. Send some guidance from above because people got me, got me questioning. Where is the love? I feel the weight of the world on my shoulder. As I'm getting older, y'all people getting colder. Most of us only care about money making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. Wrong information, always shown by the media. Negative images are the main criteria. They actually say is the main criteria, but I switched the grammar for you. You're welcome. <laughs> Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Kids want to act like they see in the cinema. Yo, whatever happened to the values of humanity? 
whatever happened to fairness and equality, instead of spreading love or spreading animosity, lack of understanding leading us away from unity. So you hear that song, right? It's just one long, sustained complaint about what is wrong with the world. And the black-eyed peas merely ask the question, what's wrong with the world? Paul tells us what's wrong with the world. It's his bad news. He says, what is wrong with the world? Why the world is the way that it is is because of human sin. Paul had these words. We read these a couple weeks ago. He put it this way. He said, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's talking about Adam, the very first human, sin entered the world through Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what Paul is saying is that Adam, this first human being, introduced sin into the world, sin we all participate in as well, and the result was the spread of death and decay and destruction. And now humankind, made in God's image, made to reflect God, now no longer reflects God's glory and God's ways. Instead, we reflect me, myself, and I. I like the way Augustine put this. Augustine was a third and fourth century church father. He said that human beings are in curvatus ense. That's Latin for curved in on ourselves. His image is of two mirrors facing one another. And if you stand in between those two mirrors, maybe you've done this, you look down one mirror and you look down another and the only thing that you can see is yourself. On and on and on and on is just yourself. That is our condition, fallen in sin. Instead of living to reflect God and his goodness, instead we reflect ourselves, our honor, our recognition, our glory, and we follow our way, our law. And Paul says because of this, because of this disobedience, because of sin, the bad news is we stand under the penalty of God's righteous judgment and we deserve God's wrath and his punishment. It's a great way to start 2021. Welcome. But here, there's good news, okay? Because weaved into this teaching about the bad news is this teaching of good news. And Paul says this good news is summarized in one teaching. It's the teaching of justification. Justification, which simply put, means that through faith in Jesus, in faith alone, a person can be made righteous and forgiven of all their sins. That's the teaching of justification at its most basic level, that through faith in Jesus, the penalty our sins deserve have been paid for in the death of Jesus, and the righteousness we need was earned by Jesus. Got any golf fans in here? Anybody who loves golf? So if you watch uh, the golf, one of the most prestigious tournaments is the, is the, the Masters Tournament. It takes place in Augusta, Georgia. And in order to symbolize the winner, they always give out a green jacket at the end. The green jacket is something that only a handful of people ever get. And now Dustin Johnson, this year, in August, won the Masters Tournament. And he scored better in the Masters Tournament than anybody ever had in history. He scored 20 under. 20 under. 20 under par. That's good, by the way. Now, imagine you go out to Augusta National and you start shooting. I guarantee you, you will shoot 55 over. Guaranteed. I don't care if you're good at golf. Actually, Noyce Barks is here. He probably would shoot much better than that. But 
you would shoot a horrible, abysmal score. Now imagine, just as Dennis Johnson is standing up to receive his trophy, to receive his green jacket, he takes his scorecard with negative 20. He hands it to you, and you in turn hand him your 50 over scorecard. And instead of him putting on the jacket, the green jacket that he worked so hard for his entire life, he instead robes you in that himself. And he gives you all the credit of what he worked for and what he accomplished. That's the message of justification. That through faith in Jesus, Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience is covering you. As one author put it, he said, quote, justification means that when God looks at you, he sees your life hidden in Christ's perfect life and perfect obedience. See, God sees you. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see your failure. He doesn't see your sins. No, he sees his son. He sees Jesus. That's the good news of grace freely given by God, freely given in justification. That's why Jesus hangs out with children, prostitutes, tax collectors. That's why he would even hang out with angry husbands and grumbling wives today because those who recognize their need most for Jesus are the ones who receive it. That's the good news. So Paul summarizes it. He says these words. This is what justification is. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men, which means heaven, salvation, a right standing with God are not earned by a good life. No, they were earned by Jesus, and he gives it freely to anyone who would receive it. That's justification. That's the good news. And that leads to a question. It's the question Paul started Romans chapter 6 with. The question is this, and maybe you're thinking this this morning. Hey, if it's not a good life that inherits heaven, that earns heaven, then the question becomes, what shall we say then? Chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, Paul, if what you're saying is true, if God is gracious and all a person has to do is have faith and they're justified, then why don't we sin so that more grace will come? Why not live the life we want to live now in sin and inherit the life of heaven in the next life? And Paul, I like sinning, God likes forgiving. This seems like a perfect relationship, doesn't it? And it's interesting. This was actually a teaching. This is actually what people believed. Listen to these words from one of Jesus' brothers. His name is Jude. He says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who what? Pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So see, Paul is saying people, people believe this. They, they take this great news of God's grace, of God's forgiveness, and they use that as a cover for sin. And they come in, they say things like, well, it's about grace, it's about love, God forgives you, so it doesn't matter what you do. You can, you can sleep with your girlfriend, or it doesn't matter if, if, if we live with one another because, after all, God is gracious, it doesn't matter about following the rules. It doesn't matter how we live. God is gracious. Or today we can kind of make this a little bit more subtle, right? We say the first thing that comes to our mind or we do the first thing that's an impulse in us and we call that being authentic. 
right? Or being real or not being fake. And it's interesting, right, that when we give kind of this, this vent to the first thing that comes to our mind, what is that other than perverting the grace of God, saying, hey, God's going to be gracious, so he's going to love me however I, I, I act, so therefore I can act authentic, I can act real. Think about when you do this with your kids, though. Right, you're playing on the playground. Say, you know, my daughter Lainey is playing at the playground. She pushes another kid. And the parent comes up to me, and she's like, hey, your daughter actually just pushed my child, stepped on her, too. And, um, you know, you should probably say something. It'd be weird, right, if I was just sitting there and said, yeah, you know, she's just being her authentic self. She's just being real, you know. I don't want her to be fake or anything, right? That sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? It's because it is. It's because that is silly. That's perverting God's grace. That's taking God's forgiveness, his love toward us, his affection toward us, and using it as a cover for our sin. So Paul anticipates this question. The question is, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Look at his answer, verse 2. He says, by no means. By no means. Meaning, heaven forbid. No, don't even let that enter your mind. That's not the way that you're supposed to live, as Kramer and Seinfeld would say. That's kooky talk, okay? And here's what Paul does. Paul tells us why that's kooky talk. He gives us the answer and then two implications. He gives us the answer for why he says by no means and then two implications that flow from it. So let's look at the answer. He says, you shall not sin so that grace may abound because you by faith are united to Jesus. You're united to Jesus. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I've been married for eight years. My wife and I, Hannah, we've been married for eight years. And you know that when you're married, right, you start sharing things. So my wife and I, we share insurance. We share a car. We share a credit score. We even share space. During my first year of marriage, we lived in a 450-square-foot studio apartment in California. We had a king-size bed. So we definitely shared space. In fact, I've never been to the bathroom more in my life because that was the only place I could go to get away from Hannah. <laughs> and now, we share things as a married couple, and this is often reflected in the vows that you take. So when you hear the vows at a traditional wedding ceremony, the last words that they usually say in the vows are this, all that I am and all that I have are yours. All that I am. All of my insecurities, all of my flaws, all of my weaknesses are yours. And all that I have, all my resources belong to you. It's what marriage is. It's about two things becoming one. And notice, that is exactly what Paul says happens when a person has faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus' followers, they were told they had this great mission by Jesus. They were told to go. He, he, he gathered his disciples around. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So followers were supposed to go out, they were supposed to tell this message of grace and then baptize people. And the reason that they were supposed to baptize is because it symbolized that when a person had water sprinkled on their head or poured on their hand or they were plunged into water, it symbolized a person being united to Jesus. Two becoming one in Jesus. So what that means is if you have faith in Jesus, if you've been baptized, then Jesus' death is your death. Jesus' burial was your burial. Jesus' resurrection was your resurrection. Now, just as in marriage, Jesus looks at you and says, all that I am and all that I have is yours. All that Jesus is and has accomplished belongs to you by faith. Like as one pastor put this, he said, the most important day of your life, if this is true, was over 2,000 years ago. Before you were even born was the most important day of your life. And I don't know what you've been through in this room this morning. Some of you maybe in 2020 have gone through divorce or job loss, illness. Maybe you've suffered abuse in some way. But if this is true, that you were united to Jesus, then that is not the most defining thing in your life. The most defining and most important thing in your life happened when Jesus lived, died, was buried, and resurrected for you. Because all that he has and all that he is belongs to you. So that's Paul's answer. All right? Now follow along with me here because Paul says, you cannot continue in sin because you're united to Jesus. Because flowing from that now come two implications. Implication number one, that if you are united to Jesus, then you are dead to sin. If you're united to Jesus, then you are dead to sin. Paul puts it this way. Paul says, verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul mean? What does it mean to be dead to sin? Well, first, it's helpful to know what he doesn't mean. See, a lot of people, they take this, well, I'm dead to sin, and therefore what that must mean is I'm no longer able to sin. That Sin will never be something that will enter my life. In other words, to die to sin means you can be sinless. And right by our experience, we realize that that's a little bit silly, right? We realize that, yeah, that's not my lived experience. If you have faith in Jesus, God doesn't just remove temptation completely or remove sin completely from your life. In fact, I like the story. It comes from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor and he was meeting with a guy who came and he said, I've died to sin, pastor. I no longer sin anymore. 
and Charles Spurgeon was a little bit puzzled by this, but he had a cup of cold water on his table there. So he grabbed the cup of cold water and he threw it in the face of the guy that was sitting across the table from him. This is how I do pastoral ministry, by the way. But he throws this cup of water on him and the guy gets visibly very upset. He pounds his fist on the table and Spurgeon was like, whoa, what's the matter? Are you angry? He said, yeah, I'm angry. He said, well, I guess that sin has come creeping back into your life, hasn't it? I guess you weren't as dead to sin as you thought. That's interesting. Now, Paul, when he says we have died to sin, again, that does not mean that we will never face temptation, that we're never going to struggle with sin, that we will never fail or never fall short. Because I assure you, if you have faith in Jesus, you will and we do. We will be tempted and we will fall short. But what this does mean, according to Paul, is that if you died with Jesus, if you have died to sin, then it means united to Jesus, he not only paid for the penalty of your sin, Jesus broke the power of sin over your life. See, Jesus doesn't come just to remove the guilt of sin, to forgive us of our sin, but to actually break the chains of power of sin in our life. Did you notice the words that Paul used to describe sin? If you read back through Romans 5 and through Romans 6, you read things like this. Paul says that sin is something that reigns. That's chapter 5, verse 21. He says sin is something that needs to be obeyed. Romans 6, verse 12. It says that sin has dominion. Sin has dominion. That's chapter 6, verse 14. What he's trying to get at is that sin is not merely something that we do, but it's something that has power over us. Rico Tice, he's an author, he put it this way. He said, we always begin by doing sin, and in the end, sin does us. We begin by doing sin, but in the end, sin does us. Right? We think sin is something that we control, something that we choose But very quickly we realize that when we indulge in sin, that our control over sin, making it our choice, quickly becomes something that controls us and has power over us. That's why Paul uses the terms reign, obey, dominion. Because sin is not like an electoral college that we get a say in and that we get a vote for. No, sin is like a tyrant king who obeys, who tells us and commands us. And we're supposed to obey. C.S. Lewis, we're reading uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with my kids right now. And there's this great illustration of the power of sin that happens in one of the main characters' lives. One of the main characters, his name is Edmund. Edmund goes through this wardrobe that brings him to the secret land of Narnia. And there he meets this woman who's riding on a white sledge and she's covered in white. And he doesn't know who this woman is. But she starts asking him these pointed questions and putting him on trial. And then in order to kind of lure him in to, his, to her questioning, she tells Edmund that he could have this, this uh, thing of Turkish delight, which Turkish delight is a candy in England. It doesn't sound very appealing, by the way. It kind of sounds like really sweet jello. But anyway, it's an English novel. If you're from England, you love Turkish delight. But anyway, Edmund starts eating this Turkish delight. And Lewis writes this, every piece was sweet and light to the very center, and Edmund had never tasted anything more delicious. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat, and suddenly he was no longer cold, but he felt the warmth work through his body. 
And he goes on and he meets his sister Lucy, who's also in Narnia, and he's told that this woman that he talked to was actually this evil witch who was not the rightful queen of Narnia. And Lucy looks at her brother and says, I say, you look awful, Edmund. Don't you feel well? Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. And when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight more than he wanted anything else. That's the history of sin. Sin and sin alone has the power to entice us to have more, to do more, to enjoy more, while also in the process making us feel more shame, more guilt, and more awful than we could ever imagine. Those of you who have struggled with sexual sin, you realize that in a profound way. Those of you who maybe have had substance abuse problems, you realize that in a profound way. That sin is this power over our lives. But what Paul says here is that in Jesus... Through faith in him, the reign of sin, the power of sin, has been destroyed. The sin no longer has power over a person who has faith in Jesus. That when Jesus died on the cross, the power of the sin was eradicated as well. Maybe give you like a real life example. We can often, right, still as followers of Jesus, indulge in sin. But what Paul is saying is that that doesn't have to be the case. You think of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was an Olympic runner. He was the main character of the true story of uh, this, this book written a few years ago. And Louis Zamperini uh, was entered into World War II by the U.S. Army. And he, he flew on these planes that were actually bombers on, on various targets in World War II. Well, he's flying in a plane one day, and his plane goes down in the South Pacific. And he's adrift in the middle of the South Pacific for nearly a month. And finally, they come across a boat that is filled with Japanese adversaries who take him captive and put him into a concentration camp. And it was there that Louis Zamperini met a, a prison guard whose name was The Bird. That was their nickname that he had for him. And, and The Bird was horrible to Zamperini. Every time that Zamperini did something wrong, The Bird would physically abuse him. He would psychologically torment him. And everything that The Bird said that Zamperini had to do, Zamperini had to do it. Otherwise, he would receive beating and scorn. And finally, after Zamperini was freed, after the U.S. conquered uh, with the Allied forces, he was set free. But just because he was set free from the power of the bird, that doesn't mean that he wasn't inclined to still snap into obedience every time that he heard a loud noise. Every time he heard a bang in his basement or he heard a bang in the kitchen, he snapped into what he thought had to be obedience to the bird again. And that's just like followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are free from the power of sin. It has no control over you. Yet, you can still allow it to have its obedience that it desires. But what Paul says here is that the power of sin, the old self, that's verse 6. He says this old self that once obeyed sin's every command has been crucified with Jesus. His crucifixion meant your crucifixion to the power of sin. I can be explicit here. If you're here this morning and you have faith in Jesus, pornography and lust does not have power over you. The idol of control, controlling your circumstances... Controlling your financial welfare does not have control over you. 
has no power over you. If you're an angry person, a greedy person, a resentful person, a person who suffers from sinful anxiety, now there's an anxiety that's good, but a sinful anxiety that plays out the future before it's come, then that has no control over you, has no power over you, because on the cross, Jesus died, and you died to the power of sin. So Paul says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. If you are united to Jesus, then you've died to the power of sin. Second implication, and this is going to be a little bit shorter than the first implication. If you've died to sin in union with Jesus, then the other implication is that you are now alive to God. You are now alive to the new life that he offers you, a new identity that he offers you. Verse 4, Paul says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, this is the purpose, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know, he says, verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, so that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you were once spiritually dead. You had no desire to follow God. But now that God has filled you with his spirit, he has given you new life to follow God, to love God, to obey God, and to trust in God. And so what Paul does here is he really makes these two stark camps. And you have to see this. Because this is the point Paul's driving home. Paul says that there are two dividing camps. You can either be dead to sin and alive to God. Or, you are dead to God and alive to sin. We like to sometimes make a third category, third camp, right? Well, I'm, I'm dead to sin, but kind of neutral toward God. Or I'm, I'm dead to sin and, and, and dead to God. Or, you know what, I'm, I'm alive to sin and I'm alive to God. But Paul's saying, no, there's no third camp. There's only two. You're either dead to sin and alive to God or alive to sin and dead to God. And there's no other competing camp. And so there's some of you in here this morning, you have to hear this. If there's no desire of following God, if there's no desire to obey Jesus, if there's no desire to be with God's people and place your trust in Jesus, then the Bible says that you are dead in sin. Spiritual life doesn't live in you. On the other hand, there are those of you here this morning and you need to hear this encouragement. You're alive to God. You're alive to God. Sometimes, you know, we can hang our heads and say, oh, I'm just, I am just such a bad person. I'm one of these people, right? I'm just such a bad person. I'll, I'll never please God. I'll never do anything that's good enough for God. Friends, you're alive to God. You're alive to God. And you need to be reminded to live in and be reminded of what Paul says here. I love the way Paul answers this question. Don't you realize it's fascinating? Paul doesn't say, well, should we sin so that grace may abound? He doesn't say, no, try hard. Do better. Give more effort. No, Paul answers the question with a question. He says, how can we, 
united to Jesus, who died with Jesus, still live in sin. For Paul, it's a logical contradiction. Paul is saying, you have a new identity in Jesus. Your former sin patterns, your former sin temptations, the former power that sin had over you is no longer most true of you. What's most true of you is what's true of Jesus. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are now a son or a daughter of God. That is the most important truth about you. You have been made alive to God, a new creation, which means you are no longer curved in on yourself. God has made you a new creation to reflect God's glory to all those around you because you are under not the reign of sin, but the reign of grace. That's your new identity. It's your new identity. To do otherwise would be to live in contradiction. So the national championship's coming up, right? It's Ohio State versus Alabama, college football national championship. And can you imagine, it's the first play of the game. Ohio State has the ball, and quarterback says hike. He turns to give it to the running back. The running back stops at the line of scrimmage, turns around, and starts running the other way. And everybody who would be watching that would be like, what are you doing? Do you know what team you're on? Don't you realize who you are? Don't you realize who you're playing for? That's how Paul thinks when he thinks, Can a Christian, can a follower of Jesus continue to live in sin? No, that'd be like them denying the very identity that God gave them. Because you are no longer dead to sin, or you're no longer alive to sin, you're dead to sin and alive to God. As T.I. and Justin Timberlake say, the old me is dead and gone. If you didn't laugh at that, ask somebody who did laugh. There's Augustine again. Augustine, phenomenal figure. He lived again during the 4th century. He was the bishop of North Africa. And if you know anything about Augustine's story, he was, he was a real charlatan. In fact, he was one of maybe the worst sinners that you could possibly think of. A lot of sexual sin in his past, prostitution, horrible things. And Augustine, after he had become a Christian... He had risen up all the way to becoming bishop of one of the most influential regions in all of Christendom. And Augustine is walking down one of the streets, one, the street one day, and he's actually heading to church. And across the street, he sees an old flame. He sees an old woman that he had had relations with in the past who runs across the street, stops him in the middle of the sidewalk, and says, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And pretending kind of not to see her and kind of saying, hey, actually, I'm going somewhere. He goes off and he goes into the church services he's about to officiate over. And he finishes the church service. They go to the Lord's table. Everybody's leaving. And this woman comes up to him in the middle of the church with everybody watching. And she's saying, hey, Augustine, it's me. It's me. And pleading with him, Augustine, don't you remember me? It's me. And Augustine looked at the woman and said, I know but that's not me. That's not me anymore. Friends, if you have faith in Jesus, the old you is dead and gone. The power of sin has been broken in your life and you can actually live a life in newness. It is January 3rd. Whatever New Year's resolution that you made, there's a good likelihood you're going to fail. But if you have faith in Jesus, 
There is one resolution that will never fail. God will grow you more into the likeness of his son Jesus day by day. The old you is dead and gone. You are alive to God. And he will carry it through to completion. That's the authentic you. That's the real you. And you can live in it. You can appropriate it because you're united to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us a new identity in your son, Jesus. That God, when we were running away from you, that when we didn't want anything to do with you, when we were alive to sin, you and your great love for us sent us your son, Jesus, to unite us to himself by faith and to die for us and to live again for us. And God, we we pray the life that he now lives, would you make it true of us that that would be the life we carry out now? God, would you make us more familiar with this identity of being in Jesus? Would you make us more desirous to follow in our new identity as followers of Jesus? And God, would you remind us that we are dead to sin, that it has no more power over us? And would you give us, by your spirit, a life-giving power to live for you, to serve like your son Jesus, and to conform us more to his likeness. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.